Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 29th of February, as we record Leap Day. And we're going to jump right into today's show, which will start by looking at our cover feature this week. That's all about power brands and whether the big consumer goods companies are getting things right at a time when big price rises mean sales volumes are starting to come under pressure. That feeds into our results coverage this week because Halion reported full year figures this morning and Reckitt Benkiza did so yesterday. We'll be examining the diverging fortunes of these consumer health companies later on. And finally, we will take a look at some of the M&A activity that's been springing up lately again in the UK market, or rather not in some cases, because management teams have been taking a sterner line on some of these offers. Joining me to discuss all of this in the studio, Jennifer Johnson. Hi, Dan. Hello. And over the line, Julian Hoffman. Hello there. Good morning. And I was about to say hello to Mark Robinson, but he's not here yet. He will be joining us later on, though. We're going to get cracking with the cover feature this week on the shelves by the time you hear this podcast. It's about power brands. Jen, you wrote this feature. Uh, Let's start by talking about the context. Why are consumer staples under pressure? Maybe it's quite an easy question to answer because they're under pressure because we're under pressure having to deal with these increasingly expensive goods that they uh, sell us all. Yes, so consumer staples, as you've alluded to, uh, are under pressure because of what's known uh, in industry jargon as down trading. Companies have passed cost increases onto consumers and in certain categories for certain products, consumers respond by seeking out cheaper private label products. So these are the own brand goods that you see in supermarkets that contain the same key ingredients as branded products, but are often a fraction of the price. So that is the the key issue that's facing your, your records and your Hallians at the moment. Yeah, this is a concern from investors' point of view uh, that has been lingering for a while, ever since inflation really took off. People thought, well, now is when the brand power of these companies will be tested, will consumers buy a tub of Marmite when it costs £4 rather than £2? Will they look for an own brand equivalent? It's only really in the last few quarters or the last few quarters of updates from these companies that we have seen that pressure come through in some areas. I know private label uh, manufacturers, for example, did have some problems scaling up their production to meet increased demand. Mm. But yes, we are in a situation now where inflation's been rising, food inflation is still in positive territory. These prices have been going up and up. Consumers are under pressure. We're reaching the limits in some cases. Therefore, this downtrading is happening. However, one thing the piece looks at is whether there are parts of the consumer goods world which might be more resilient than others. Mm. So in particular, consumers seem less willing to trade down on over-the-counter medicines. And there are a couple of theories behind this. One, when you're ill or a family member is ill, you're likely to turn to a brand that you trust or that you perceive as reliable and high quality. Many of us already have this established relationship with products like Strepsils or Lemsip, both of which are manufactured by Reckitt. Um, we might have been given these by 
our parents when we were younger and we associate them with feeling better. So this association persists into later life. The second reason medicines are more resilient is that ideally we aren't buying them very often. We might buy things like dishwasher tablets or baked beans on a fairly regular basis and we're therefore more likely to notice the price increases on our preferred brands. Then we'll trade down once we deem them too expensive. If you have, say, a couple of of colds a year, you're probably not going to uh, approach, you know, the -the over-the-counter medicines aisle uh, with an eye to to saving 15p or 20p or whatever it, it might be. So it's a matter of kind of emotions as well as of price awareness. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Neurofen, to take an example, again, manufactured by Reckitt, is the kind of thing people will buy. They won't buy something that's half the price with exactly the same ingredients because mm. that that's you know the power of the brand and, and you know, all that familiarity is in there. We should say, I suppose, it's not a done deal, though, for these companies just to manufacture consumer health products and, you'll, you know, you'll be away. Reckitt's results yesterday did show that their volumes are coming under pressure, which is, of course, what happens when price rises become too great for too many people and revenue may still be rising but because of these price rises, but volumes are falling at the same time and that worries investors. Mm. Let's shift slightly, though, because one interesting aspect of the piece was when we looked at not so much a pain relief uh, product, but we looked at toothpaste. Mm. We looked at Sensodyne in particular. Quite an interesting story there. Yeah, Um, as interesting as toothpaste can possibly be. Well, yeah, it's all right. Um, (laughs) But the story of Sensodyne is that it had been, it's been around for well over a century. It was invented or formulated by uh, a pharmacist in New York in the early 1900s, He later founded his own company, which was ultimately acquired by one of the earlier incarnations of GSK around sort of the year 2000. And at the time, Sensodyne was this peripheral product that was only sold in certain pharmacies, uh, despite the fact, obviously, that, that tooth sensitivity is this really common issue. So GSK obviously knew to some degree, that they were kind of onto a winner with, with this product. Their initial strategy was to just stock it in supermarkets, so to stock it more widely, um, and consumers will become aware of it and think, oh, gosh, I've had this problem for ages, and look at this this solution. But actually, just the, the stocking in a greater range of places had this limited effect. Um, the marketing geniuses at GSK eventually realised that most people with this sort of tooth pain didn't really know what it was or that it is a sign of a structural problem with their teeth. So tooth sensitivity happens when your enamel or your gums get worn down and this kind of lower layer of your tooth gets exposed to a stimulus like a cold drink. Sales only took off of Sensodyne once GSK started marketing the product as a cure for what they call dentine hypersensitivity. And they also made sure dentists were telling patients that this is a problem that can be solved with a toothpaste. So through marketing, they basically told people about this problem that existed. And, you know, before people might have just thought that, oh, you know, it's it's the cold drink that's causing this issue rather than the, the structural problem with the tooth. So they kind of created the problem or created awareness of the problem at the same time they were telling people that there's a solution. So this really is the kind of gold standard of 
um, you know, over-the-counter healthcare products. Mm. Sensodyne is still doing very well, as we mm. saw this morning in Halion's results, which we'll come to in a moment. Uh, that particular brand well ahead of uh, forecasts. But but let's stay with the idea of consumer health in general. There, there are two things to pick up on here or that I want to pick up on here. One is that there are more companies and more listed companies in this space, Halion being one example. Uh, is this getting more competitive from an investor's point of view, perhaps more opportunities, but equally if you've got a lot of listed companies there, there's going to be pressure to innovate, which leads me to my second point, which is about innovation, if you can call it that, because, of course, you need new products in order to keep growing sales and to keep growing volumes. And in this kind of area, they are often iterative rather than something brand new, but that can work quite well in some cases. Yeah, so on the competition point, in terms of the sheer number of players in consumer health, this is becoming a more crowded market. And that's because you've had pharmaceutical companies deciding to offload these kind of lower margin parts of their business. And that's because we've got these kind of patent cliffs. This is something that, that the pharmaceutical industry is really concerned about. So they need to invest in the development of new pharmaceutical drugs, you know, the ones that are prescribed by by doctors because their existing portfolios are only under patent protection for so long or the existing drugs in their portfolios are only under patent protection for so long. So they really kind of need cash. Uh, one way of generating this cash, obviously, is to offload your consumer health business. So that's what GSK did with Hallian. Last year, Johnson & Johnson offloaded its consumer health arm, which is now trading as Kenview. In recent months, we've heard that Sanofi, that's the French pharmaceutical giant, is planning to do the same for its consumer business in the not too distant future. We don't know whether that will, will end up ultimately being a, a private company or whether it will IPO. The shape of that is still kind of um, yet to, to be decided. But the thing to keep in mind with these new consumer health groups is that their products have been jostling for market share already. It isn't like there's going to be this huge new range of products that flood into established markets. Where there is more of a battle uh, is in emerging markets. So these are places where consumers won't necessarily have these long-standing relationships with toothpaste or with painkiller brands. Uh, in, in developed markets, the, the threat isn't necessarily other consumer health companies at the moment, but it is these, these private label brands that we discussed earlier. Mm. And I suppose more listed companies with a sole focus on this area might mean there may be the case when they're part of a bigger business, part of the farmer's side of things, that not that that aspect of the business, consumer health, was being left to lag, but now they are managed by a management team solely focused on the area. You can see more competition coming that way, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Now they're, they're sole dedicated companies, but maybe that's... Uh, spitballing that has no basis in reality. I'm sure they were prioritised quite a lot when they were part of the, the main businesses too. We'll come back to innovation in a minute mm. uh, when we talk about Reckitt perhaps uh, because there's some interesting points there. But but one company we haven't mentioned so far is Unilever, mm. which is a company that focuses or has started focusing on what it calls its power brands. Part of the reason it's doing that is because it has been seeing volume declines in some areas it has therefore been struggling with its competitiveness. It publishes this figure, market share figure, and 
where it's taking market share, where it's losing it. That that figure has not been great in recent quarters. Obviously, it has a new chief executive, a new management team that we've spoken about on the show before. At the same time, they're a business focused across the consumer goods piece, of course, you know, the classic products being Magnums, Cornettos, Marmite, uh, Hellman's mayonnaise, things like that. Yep. They, however, do have an interest in the well-being side of things, which is tangential to consumer health, but something they are seeing some strength in at the moment, albeit we can't necessarily say it's a like-for-like with consumer health categories. Yeah, and I suppose the distinction to make here is the kind of amount of science or scientific claims that back up these products with something like you know, LEMSIP, which is based on paracetamol, you can say confidently 100% of the time, this is going to address your fever and body aches when you have the flu. With Sensodyne, it's like this is definitely going to help with your tooth sensitivity. Um, Unilever clearly understands that there is some counter-cyclical value in this sort of science-backed consumer health, which it actually doesn't have a great deal of, of kind of exposure to. It did um, make something like three bids for Hallian after GSK announced it was going to offload the business. Mm. So, again, the the more the scientific, more scientific side of things is clearly of interest. Um, in the absence of uh, a real kind of genuine consumer health portfolio, they've been kind of pushing this um, upstart health and wellness unit, which sells vitamins and uh, electrolyte drinks and in its kind of it's also got a beauty arm where they're selling products that are kind of designed to look like something you might get from a, a dermatologist skincare products that you know have scientific claims or ingredients that are proven to work um so it's yeah it's trying to get in on this this kind of loyalty really the loyalty that an effective product can can have really when you look at something like Marmite or a vegetable stock cube, that is something that's very easily replaced. And uh, an own brand vegetable stock cube is going to be just as effective in flavouring your food uh, as as Unilever's. So it's trying to get in on some of this um, this scientifically proven stuff, even if it's not strictly selling medicines. And it's... You know, the, the success or failure of these products really is not down to whether they work or not, but it's down to how effective the marketing is. Yeah, whether they can become a, a power brand doesn't necessarily need a basis in a scientific reality, Indeed. does it? Uh, Unilever is an interesting company. Uh, it's in the middle of this attempt to turn around. And yesterday, Terry Smith at the Fundsmith AGM, I believe, made some more conciliatory noises. He is... A, or has been a disgruntled shareholder in the business. Nelson Peltz, another investor, is now on the board. So they have got some of these investors on the right side, but there doesn't seem to be much sign yet of a turnaround at an operational level. So we'll see in the next few quarters how well that is going. Let's look at Halion more closely now, though, because their figures were out this morning, as mentioned. And we can contrast them with Reckitt, because Reckitt yesterday had a rather disappointing set of figures, whereas this morning, Halion's figures look overall pretty good. Yeah, I think as good as you can expect them to look, given that, you know, even if they do have these these power brands in the portfolio, there is still going, going to be a degree of, of down trading in the macro environment. Um, that's really inevitable. 
But again, the power brands were its sales standout. Six out of nine of them delivered double-digit revenue growth. Interestingly, uh, emerging markets, which account for about a third of turnover, saw revenue expand by almost 15% across the 2023 financial year. There was less momentum in developed economies where sales ticked up by just under 5%. There were some issues with margins when you look at the the whole year. Uh, Gross margin fell by 90 basis points to just under 60% due to obviously the well-documented impacts of, of cost inflation that have been hitting consumer companies more generally. But we did see these headwinds start to ease towards the end of the year, resulting in gross margin growth in in the fourth quarter. So the company has been impacted in a way that you would completely predict and isn't um, at all surprising. But things are looking up. I think there's some reason for quiet optimism. Yes, uh, that seems to be a good summation. There were some FX charges in there which complicated things as well. One thing we should speak about is the buyback. Uh, clearly, mm. Halion is far from alone in announcing a buyback in recent months, but it could be particularly useful for them because one of the concerns people have about the company is the the overhang of shareholdings owned still by GSK and Pfizer. Now, there have been some sell-downs over the past year, I believe, but they still own a good chunk of the company, about a third, I think. Just over, yeah. So... The buyback could work quite well, uh, Halion said this morning on the analyst call, that they could do the buyback in the open market or, preferably, they could wait for uh, another stake sale by GSK or Pfizer and do the buyback then, which would turn a, a negative into a positive. Clearly, they can't tell when GSK or Pfizer will start selling their next tranche of shares, but that does at least provide perhaps some solace for investors who are still worried about this overhang and this share sale that will have to happen at some point. Yeah, I guess the thing that investors are concerned about here is that uh, GSK or Pfizer are just going to flood the market with these shares, which would send the share price down. Um, So the buyback is clearly designed to reassure these investors, as we don't really have any insight into what Pfizer or GSK are going to do and when. The only other thing not to be concerned about, I would say, but to be aware of is that it is upping its dividend and announcing the share buyback at a time where it's still fairly indebted. Its net debt to adjusted EBITDA figure currently sits at three times, uh, which some analysts have said might uh, be a little bit of a sticking point for some investors. Management pointed out in the results that in the last 18 months since the, the demerger, Uh, It reduced its net debt by over £2 billion. Uh, It brought that net debt to adjusted EBITDA figure down from four times to three times. So clearly it's also, while it's it's aware that the buyback is is kind of necessary, it's also aware that it doesn't look great. The optics aren't great with this level of of leverage. So that's something to, to keep in mind. But I think... When you look at Hallian, the problems that Hallian is facing compared to the problems that Reckitt is facing, uh, if it's an either or choice in consumer health, Hallian is definitely in in the better position at the moment. They have been selling 
brands themselves as well, which gives them some wiggle room on the, the cash and the leverage front. Chapstick, mm-hmm. which is apparently a lip balm brand, uh, was the latest sale for $413 million last month. So they do have some uh, wiggle room there, as I say. This is a good time to turn to Reckitt because Reckitt's results yesterday, part of the reason they were disappointing was the, the cold and flu season, which despite all the attributes of consumer health companies we've spoken about, there are things they can't control, like the timing of cold and flu season. This year, it was quite late, and therefore, at record at least, sales volumes took an even bigger fall as a result of that. They sold less of those products in those areas. Halion, by comparison, that segment held up quite well, which uh, I think they put down to being in different geographic areas from competitors. Mm. But... But let's turn to Reckitt because we, we, we look at Reckitt in the, the cover feature as well and, and some of the uh, issues with that business and there's a question of over-innovation perhaps when it comes to Reckitt. Yeah, it is. And I think that part of the reason we should say, first of all, that, that the results yesterday looked disappointing. Um, volumes were, were down by more than 4% for the full year. All three divisions, health, hygiene and nutrition, went backwards on units sold. But there are, if we're being generous, some kind of one-off factors here. One of them is that nutrition volumes fell by 10% because uh, it had the company had benefited from supply shortages in infant formula, in the infant formula market um, last year. Mm. So uh, the company... Their competitor in this area, Abbott Labs, um, had some some supply issues. So it's not a it's not an easy like for like comparison. And as you said, with the the cold and flu season thing, it's also not that easy because obviously we had a pandemic when cold and flu products would have been in high demand. Then after the pandemic, there was some evidence that everyone was just kind of getting ill more generally once we started mixing again. So that was going to be good um, for record sales. Likewise with hygiene. Um, you know, it's going to be tough to to compare performance with the past couple of years because everyone was going to be using, um, you know, large quantities of of things like Dettol disinfectant when we were in that pandemic and just sort of post lockdown period. So some of these things are one offs. Um, some analysts have also argued that management is setting itself up for failure with high revenue targets and also that the company has kind of put out iterations of certain products that don't represent a significant um, improvement on past products. So you're just kind of adding an ingredient or marketing something slightly differently. So they've sort of um, arguably wasted money there. But I think the reality is and something to, to keep in mind for investors is that Consumer businesses aren't going to deliver growth in the way that tech companies are um, at any point. So it's it's a matter of managing expectations, understanding that we're coming out of this highly irregular period um, for things like health and hygiene. So, yeah, while, while there are reasons to be concerned about Reckitt, there's also this um, accounting issue in the Middle East, which kind of scared investors off yesterday um but is a separate issue to to what we've been discussing um i think wreck it's kind of a a wait and see Mm. yes uh some of these products as well there's a fine line sometimes between a a unnecessary and failed innovation and one that ends up selling lots yeah when you think of all different to go back to traditional consumer goods all different flavors of things that some of them take off some of them crash and burn i can't think of any specific examples but who knows? I stick to 
what do I stick to? Sour cream and onion Pringles. Don't, <laughs> don't really deviate from the one flavour, but there we go. Uh, Julian, you've been sitting patiently through all this. What, what are your thoughts on, on Reckitt as a company at the moment? It's an interesting dilemma for investors. The first point I, to make, and it's probably a general one really to what we call defensive shares, is that um, investors traditionally are terrible at valuing the company. <laughs> So the, the slightest either under or over performance, the market tends to overreact. So I, I don't envy um, uh, Reckitt's uh, management really in the in trying to deal with the market at the moment. Uh, yeah, I would class them more as a momentum share really rather than defensive. But yes, it, it, there is a there is a phenomenon really where this uh, situation that they're facing the scenario is inevitable because um, they can only defy. Um, you know, consumer spending for so long before um, uh, before they give back all the gains they've made, and um, I don't see the company as uh, you know badly run or anything, but it's it's definitely a much more volatile share than people give it credit for. I think, and uh, the results really were just the trigger for essentially a momentum change. It is a it is a you know a case that they'll they'll probably find their feet. It's it's a definitely a um, a well-run and um, well-organized business. So you, you think that um, this is just part of the course, as far as uh, as far as I can see. Yeah, well, Reckitt too have a relatively new management team in place, or certainly new chief executive. So we can maybe expect some uh, shake-up there. And you, you did see some of that yesterday with, I think, some of the suggestions of of what they're going to do. They've already said they're going to invest more in R and D, which again can be a double-edged sword. This is one area where investors do like to see R and D, but equally. It's got to be in the right places and working out what those places are is easier said than done. It's also not particularly efficient. I mean, it's uh, um, it's all very well, you know, shouting at them that they've got to spend money money on research and development, but it's how that actually translates into new products, which is is the, the key problem to overcome. Mm. So, yeah, so, uh, you know, they'll come up with, um, I'm sure they'll come up with some new ideas, but it's, uh, in the meantime, you just have to stick with it as a, a very a far more volatile share than um, anyone actually perceives it to be. But, um, you know, that's just the reality of the market, really. Mm. Well, the, the, the thing about these companies, all of them, however much the individual products are in vogue, all of them we've spoken about so far today, you know, they are big cash generators, aren't they? They are throwing off a lot of cash at all times, and, and therefore the total return to shareholders can be pretty, uh, uh, pretty reliable. But I'm sure this topic will run and run. It's run its course for now, though. We are going to turn to our final section of the show, which is about M&A activity in the UK market. And we'll start with a couple of recent approaches that have been rejected by management, because to me, that's quite interesting. Last year or the year before, certainly you saw a lot of M&A in the UK, a lot of deals being done at levels that some shareholders complained about. You didn't see too many uh, rejections by management However, in the past few days, we've seen curries and we've also seen a direct line pushback on opening offers. I dare say there may be more to come. Uh, Julian, why don't we start with you and direct line because you cover them. What did you make of this uh, approach yesterday by a, a Belgian rival? It definitely opportunistic, I would say, on their part, because um, direct line, as we know from our coverage, has been underperforming really for the last two years, at least, arguably longer. So the shares are the shares have struggled to uh, get back towards their their listing price um, 
uh, now five five years ago now when RBS got rid of it. Um, the, the I, I would say that management can uh, afford to hold out on this one, um, if only because the new guy is only going to start uh, uh, tomorrow. Um, so they've appointed a, a new chief executive uh, who ran a successfully a division of um, Aviva's uh, motor insurance division. You know, it's really a question. They probably fix the balance sheet. It's just have they now? They now need to go into the the weeds of their operations in order to improve their performance. So uh, I would say that uh, if they sold out now, they would pre probably be undervaluing the company quite significantly because that process of uh, of sorting out. Uh, uh, where it had gone wrong in terms of its underwriting is 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 kind of now starting, and uh, that will uh, inevitably sort of de um, deliver a structural, um, you know, uplift because the you know it, it will be working a lot better uh, by this time next year. Um, so I, I I wouldn't be I wouldn't uh, I wasn't surprised that that was direct, uh, was uh, rejected and probably the the shareholders are going to get a better, you know, a better deal in the long run if they stick with the new management team rather than suddenly just change over to becoming a, a kind of Belgian subsidiary, as it were. Mm. Well, we'll see if they, they do come back with another bid. That's, that is a very good point about the new CEO starting tomorrow. Uh, this bid, I should say, it came to light yesterday, but it was made at the end of January, nonetheless very recent. And we have seen some takeovers in the, the UK insurance space in recent years. And, and there's no doubt after the last couple of years that Direct Line, with all its profit warnings, of which there have been multiple, is quite lowly valued. Uh, Mark, I believe you are now with us. Welcome. Uh, I want to ask you about the other uh, rejected bid from recent weeks, which is Curry's. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that one in particular. I don't have that many uh, specific thoughts related to Curry's itself. I mean, obviously, in common with uh, a lot of high street businesses, it's been struggling with uh, falling sales as customers have uh, cut back on spending. I mean, that's a fairly straightforward argument. Uh, but like uh, Julian mentioned before, I mean, there's there's always going to be an opportunist, opportunistic sort of element to this, given uh, UK ratings relative to their overseas counterparts at the moment. I think the interesting thing as we uh, move into this year, and it's something that I, I pointed out recently in one of my columns, will be the increased um, influence of uh, arbitrage or merger arbitrage opportunities. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I pointed out uh, the situation with uh, smart metering systems and uh, their perspective takeover from uh, KKR. Now, certainly the influence of um, uh, private equity has been commented upon uh, in the past and smart metering system fits in with KKR's uh, determination to increase their exposure to the uh, the general energy transition and, and that business is a, a lower risk option on, on that front. But I think you're, we're going to start seeing um, a lot of specialist uh, arbitrage funds coming into the market as well uh, and this presents some opportunities for uh, retail investors or at least those with understanding of this process and those willing to take on a bit of risk. It's it's a situation whereby uh, investors will have to look at certain risk factors, uh, the, the offer price itself, uh, the spread, together with any regulatory issues and the possibility that the, 
the bid would be rejected by either the target or acquiring company's shareholders. The, the logic behind this, of course, is when a bid is made, there's normally a shortfall in terms of the, the target company's share price and the offer price. And that spread there is where the opportunity lies. And that's why people, institutions that, that uh, engage in this for a living, they, they'll be looking at that. And of course, with you're going to see more entrance in the market as well, given the fact that most people expect UK equity prices to rise as the year progresses. Once we get some uh, uh, crystallised idea of when the rate cutting process will start, those valuations will creep up. I mean, that's the orthodox view of it anyway. So it's quite interesting. Um, I think we've mentioned in one of the podcasts in the, in the past that uh, we expected M&A volumes to... Uh, increase this year in this this early part as well we're probably going to see a little bit more rejections because of the opportunistic uh, nature of, of some of those bids so i don't think there's anything more than that really mm. to return to curries the aspect of this which may be uh, indicative as well is the fact that there is a potential bidding war there uh, elliot has made a couple of rejected bids jd.com of china is supposedly interested too and that, and that has echoes in other companies uh, as well. Just today, Wincanton, which uh, was already being bid for by a French company, we've seen GXO Logistics come in with a much higher uh, bid. Uh, so from shareholders' point of view, that is a pretty attractive prospect, whether or not they get involved in the, the uh, merger arbitrage strategies because they can simply uh, sit back and watch as these higher bids come in. But maybe that's a very uh, uh, rose-tinted view of the, the market at the moment. There is, there is no doubt, Mark, uh, as you say, that uh, we are due an uptick, I think, given valuations being where they are and given last year, I think the fall was about 20% in terms of uh, M&A activity in the UK market. Perhaps I mentioned Elliot there, but apart from that, all of these bids we've spoken about have been overseas companies as well, rather than private equity. Private equity has its own problems. So perhaps that's a sign yeah. of things to come too, that, that these are actually going to be other companies looking at these businesses and looking for combinations there rather than a PE type buyouts of which we saw quite a lot in 2022. Yeah and, and obviously the, you know the, the underlying reason for all this is that the cost of financing these type of deals is, is going to, is going to fall throughout the year too. Um, you, we, we could say it's just a, nat, a natural con, consequence of uh, what's going to happen because of the cost of capital will come down over time. Um, so uh, we shouldn't be too surprised. It's, we, I, I would just reiterate that point to uh, to our listeners out there. Is it, it is worthwhile just having a look at some uh, arbitrage strategies uh, because if nothing else, they're quite good fun. Well, that's what we're all here for at the end of the day, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you could say our listeners are here to make money as well, but why not both? On which note, hmm. we have sadly come to the end of today's show. So thank you very much to Mark, to Julian, to Jen and to our producer, Maddie Apthorpe. We will be back next week with another Companies and Market Show. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm.